Thanks be to God. Oh, nice. Uh, Josh cracks me up. Love him. Uh, good morning. My name is Jake. Thanks for the good morning back. My name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors here. And we're going to be in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 19. So go ahead, open up your Bibles, and you can just find chapter 3, verse 19. Just kind of place your finger by it so you know where we're going to be following along and read it. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we are opening up your word, and yes, thank you, God, that you speak. And so I just pray over all our people right now in the sanctuary that uh, everyone, you know the variety of, of positions of our heart that we're in. And so you know some of us are excited, expectant, some of us are tired, some of us frustrated, angry, bitter. Wherever we're at, I'm asking that, Holy Spirit, you would come and meet every single one of them. And that, Jesus, you would come present to us in the scriptures and that you would walk amidst us in this room. Amen. Amen. So when, uh, when I first started preaching at this church uh, a while ago, the week of preaching, I would get like super locked in and uh, my poor wife, Lexi, I would be like, every plan needs to be canceled. I need to be at bed five o'clock the night before. <laughs> if we had a date night, I was like, I don't know. What if God has to speak to me on Thursday night at five o'clock? And, uh, and so I was just kind of like a pain <laughs> to be around <laughs> as I prepared. And uh, it's funny, it's funny now after we've been married for a while, uh, and we have a kiddo, Lexi would probably say to me, I don't care if you're preaching to all of God's angels tomorrow. If our son cries, you will get up with me. <laughs> and uh, she was super gracious to me at the beginning, still very much is. <laughs> I didn't mean it to sound like that. Um, she went to the nine, so it's okay. <laughs> as long as you guys don't tell her. Um, so, when I was first, maybe like three times into preaching, I had a predicament where I had a friend of mine who was getting married on Saturday before I preached on Sunday, and I was internally debating, do I go, do I not? Um, I know it's a bad move, okay? I already know. You don't need to be like Jake. So, Internally, I'm wrestling, and really on Saturday, I'm still writing my sermon, and I come to the end of the day, and I realize I can't go. And it's because someone had said of my sermon that I had been writing, eh. I don't know if the people, when they hear that, are going to be very impressed with how much time you spent on this sermon. And so I spent the entire night writing it, missed my friend's wedding. Uh, and then I got the next morning and I worked on it some more and I preached it and I got done preaching and that same someone said to me, honestly, eh. And you guys actually know who this person is. Is Jake really gonna put somebody on blast like that right now? Um, you, you do. You know exactly who this is because they have said similar things to all of you guys. Things like, 
honestly, when you think about it, you're not that great of a mom. Think about how impatient you were this last week with your kids. Or they say, 37, and this is what you've made of your career. Or as you sit in your Bible study, things like, honestly, when you look at your faith, I just don't really think you believe that much. It, that someone is your heart. It is the worst critic, often the most brutal. What's so hard about it is you have to live with your heart and it knows everything about you and a lot of the things it throws against you are at least somewhat true. How do you respond to a heart that condemns you? Like, in, like look right here in verse 20. Whenever our hearts condemn us, that's what we need to talk about today. Because your heart will condemn you. For some of us, it gets so bad that it leads us into bouts of mental health, depression, and anxiety, and all kinds of other mess. For some of us, we look good on the outside, but the heart that condemns and the voice and the things that it says function like a cruel taskmaster, like me, where I'm not, I'm missing a friend's wedding because I'm like so worried, not even about like that God's word would be preached. I'm worried about what you guys think about me when I get done. And so all of us have this heart and our, our world has ways that it tells you to deal with the voice of the heart. Common words, phrases, they come out in cliches within our culture that we're gonna talk about how they're not actually helpful. These, these little things you say back to your heart, but we have to say something back to our heart, right? Like you, you live with your heart. If it says something in con condemnation, you have to be able to, in a sense, give a defense to your own heart. So what do you say? First John is gonna tell us what to say. Because to kind of remember where we're at in this letter, chapter three, talked about last week and, and with Will and the week before with John, what has he said so far? He has said that if you're really a Christian, you won't sin. Okay, and then the next thing that Will was preaching about is that if you're really a follower, you will love your brothers and sisters. And we all go, okay. And then he says, the standard of love is Jesus sacrificially dying. At that moment, your heart can't help but perk up and say, hey, you don't live like that. So what do you say back to your heart? John is assuming this, with the church. And when you get to the end of the letter, it's very clear his desire is he wants them to be reassured and know that they belong to God's people. So we have to deal with that condemn condemning voice. And so he says in verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. How do we reassure our hearts? We reassure our hearts by what he just said, by the fact that we love one another, and that's how we know we really belong to the truth. And that's when the heart gets to jump up and say, you don't really love people like that. And there might be a whole myriad of reasons that our heart condemns us. So what do you do? What do you, what do you say back to your heart? Here's what our culture says. 
nobody's perfect. That's our cliche phrase that we use to satiate the condemning heart. Nobody's perfect. I'm only human. I'm learning to embrace my flaws and live with them. And, and we laugh, right? But we use this frame of thinking in some way to kind of lower the standard of God. Here's why it doesn't work. Jesus literally said in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your father is perfect. So our heart is not stupid. And so when we say, hey, nobody's perfect, as a genuine follower of Jesus, our heart goes, well, so that doesn't really, here's the other reason that doesn't actually work, and I think that we experience it this way, and I'll tell it to you with a story. When me and Lexi first got married, uh, I had characteristics about me where I would, uh, I'm an external processor, you might guess that, and it, it comes in a lot of giftings in, in ways, which it helps this out. Uh, I find out what I'm saying as I'm saying it. It does not work very well when you're an extrovert and you're an external processor. And as a young man, your, your confidence really outstrips your abilities. <laughs> and so when we first got married, I would talk over my wife without even knowing it and be like 30 minutes into something that I'm making up that I know about. And so at first she was very patient with me and very gracious. And then as our marriage went on, she would finally pipe up and say, hey, you're talking over me. You need to stop. And the first time she said that, what happens in my heart, right? First, I'm embarrassed because she's right. The second thing is that my heart points out, condemns me in the moment. You're wrong. That's not loving at all. And it's arrogant. And then I have this reaction where I want to push back and go, oh, you see, Lexi, I grew up in a family where it's normal for us to all talk over each other. <laughs> Some people laughing because they got that family. <laughs> and it's, you know, I, I, I just, this is, I'm an external processor. This is how I am. And you know what? Nobody's perfect. And so, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, but, you know, you just kind of got to deal with it. That doesn't work, does it? Because it makes me unable to love my wife and in that moment ignore the wisdom she's giving me towards loving anyone else. Nobody's perfect fails at a cliche because God's standard actually is perfection. To lower it does not make our heart satisfied. It might numb it for a second, but ultimately I think our hearts end up crying out again. And it doesn't make us loving. So if that doesn't work, what does? If nobody's perfect doesn't really actually help us, what phrase do you say back to your heart? John tells them, Whenever our hearts condemn us, verse 20, what does he say? God is greater than our heart. How does that three-word three phrase actually help you? God is greater. It had a long history in the Old Testament, in the Bible, 
where when people would pray, you see this all throughout the Psalms, they would come before God realizing their failure, their sin, even their enemies weighing them down. And what they would say is they would pray, God, you are greater than X, Y, Z. And then they would start to recount all of the deeds that God had already done in history. For them to say God is greater was a signal word to the heart that would say, you need to remember what God has done that makes him above this. So when your heart condemns you, what do you say back to it? God is greater. So whenever your heart says, you failed, you don't need to say, no, I didn't. I'm only human. Instead, say to your heart, God's mercy is greater than my failure. When, whenever your heart condemns and say, says, you've sinned, you don't need to give it a defense, you don't need to try, like, instead say, God's mercy and his blood of his son is greater than my sin. Whenever your heart comes to a place where it says, you will never be better, and it begins to attack your worth, say, God is greater than my potential. He is more faithful to his people than my efforts are. Whenever your heart condemns your faith and says, are you really even a Christian? You need to say back to your heart, God is greater. Look at how Jesus responded to the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Look at how Jesus was merciful and gracious to the ones that nailed him on the cross. God is greater than my sin. He is greater than my failures. He is greater than even my thoughts about myself. And at this moment, your heart might try to step in and be like, yeah, but the pastor doesn't know everything. He doesn't know what's in my heart. And it's like John assumes that because what is the next line that he says after that? That God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. He knows what's in your heart. He knows the parts that are hiding and he knows the parts that are good. He knows everything about you. You are fully known by God. And he responds to you in love. He responds to you in mercy. He responds to you in grace. Whenever your heart speaks up and condemns, you are to say, church, God is greater than you, heart. I'll let him have the final word. And that allows us to move forward where the church is meant to move forward. Because we would be mistaken if you were to take this part, stop here, and be like, I'm glad God has given us something to make us feel better about ourselves. Which is often how our culture would talk about it. You feel bad about yourself, you need to accept your failures and flaws so that you can feel better about yourself. God is not interested in making you feel better about yourself. He is interested in making you look like Jesus. So the first step is we need to know how to respond to the heart that condemns, but it doesn't stop there. In fact, it continues on. He assumes, right, if our hearts do not condemn us in verse 21. He's assuming it's already working in the church. He's assuming that when you hear that God is greater, it will work. And then he says, we have confidence before God. Confidence before God. Something that everybody, I think, would like a little bit more of. Confidence. Again, there's another way, that another cliche phrase that our culture might use, but 
really, it is we, we do. We, do cry, we, we crave more confidence, confidence in our bodies, confidence that we could stand in a social situation and interact with people, confidence in the workplace, our skills, our abilities to put our right foot forward and to advance. Confidence is not necessarily a bad thing, but the diagnosis of our culture gives is wrong because we have a culture obsessed with the idea of confidence, and it's all centered on you. And so the problem is that our culture paints this picture that you are your worst critic. So what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to stand in front of the mirror, look at yourself, and you need to believe in yourself. That's the phrase that you can say back to your heart. Believe in yourself. And there's a whole concoction and mix of ways. I mean, the amount of articles that you can find if you, if you Google what's the key to self-confidence, all of them really boil down to you. Overemphasize your giftings. Ignore your failures. You need to believe in yourself, love yourself, tell yourself you're valued, and then you'll be confident. And it does not really work. Here's why. It's the wrong problem. The problem is not that you don't know how to stand in front of yourself with confidence. It's not that you don't know how to stand in front of other people with confidence. The problem is, as a human being, you don't know how to stand before God with confidence. And as human beings, we were made for God. We were made for worship. And because of that, if you're in a place where the heart is speaking and condemning, you don't know how to respond to it, and you're looking within yourself towards yourself, and you don't have confidence to stand, you're made for God, and so it cripples every other part of your life. It does not matter how much you like yourself if you don't believe that God likes you. Vice versa. If you really believe that God likes, enjoys, delights, and loves you, the internal voice really has a lot less authority, doesn't it? It has a lot less to say when God speaks, because at that point, if you really believe that God speaks highly of you and loves you and affirms you and says you are a child, the only response that you have is pride in saying no thank you. And so... That doesn't really work. So how do we get confidence before God? If it's not believing yourself, what do you say? Look in verse 22. John tells us, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. If you stopped right there, you could make this into a type of religious performance, couldn't you? That those who keep his commands can be confident before God. And some of us, even within the family of God, that's as far as we get. So we come in the faith, and for a long time, we go back to this type of religious performance where our confidence before God when we pray, when we talk to him, as we live our daily lives, is based off of how well you have satisfied your religious checkbox list that week. And that is not what this is saying. Because you have to keep reading. He said, you know, says, 
whatever we ask to receive him because he, we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. But you gotta ask the question, what commandment? And it says in the very next line, this is the commandment. Do you see it in verse 23, what that commandment is? We believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. How do you get confident before God? Believe in yourself doesn't work. Believe in the name of Jesus. That is how we have confidence before God. And again, to say that we believe in the name of Jesus, I think it's interesting. You see there how it doesn't just say, like, it could have said believe in Jesus, right? It could have said that, but instead it said believe in the name of Jesus, which is a Bible version way, right? Your name is identified with who you are and your actions. So to believe in the name of Jesus means that you trust in what Jesus has done in history. You trust that there really was a man named Jesus who lived in Nazareth, who was a Jewish man who began to work miracles, preach the kingdom of God, love people well, and then people killed him. And you trust that that testimony is handed down to you from 2,000 years ago that after he died, he came back from the dead. And you trust that this Jesus was not just some average man. This was God in the flesh walking amongst us to show the world that he loves us and would die for us. You want to have confidence before God? Your confidence is based off of what Jesus has done, his action. How could you be confident based off of what somebody else has done? Jake, because if I say my, my sister is beautiful, that doesn't make me feel more confident in my skin. If I say, hey, my friend just got a promotion, that does not make me feel more confident in my abilities. How do you be confident in what somebody else has accomplished? Here's how. Jesus didn't come for himself. He came to represent all of humanity. The Bible talks about Jesus as the high priest. What does a priest do? A priest represents the people before God. You can't just walk in front of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you just walked in front of God, you can get vaporized in the presence of God in the temple. So there were people who went through all these rituals that would symbolize that this is a God of life and we're covered in sin. And so we gotta do all these things so that we can step in front of him. And the Bible paints this picture that when Jesus died on the cross, he became your priest, meaning he could hold your hand, walk you into the holiest place of heaven and say, they belong here. And what that does, it gives you confidence. I know a friend of mine who likes to pray with his imagination. And so he'll think of these places uh, that he'll imagine that he's there in his mind, right? And he will do this just kind of exercise that will help him connect to God. And so he's been doing it for a bit and told me a story of this place where he imagined kind of, and this is so peculiar to him, like a, like a pub type bar almost. 
And he would go there and walk in the door and within that bar, he would imagine the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sitting at this high bar table and they'd have a beer for him and they would say, come sit down. And then you would imagine coming and sitting down and imagine their faces delighting in his presence. And then he would start to pray, right? That, like, what a cool like, entryway into prayer. And he told me of this time where he really messed up. He had done something that really hurt his wife within their marriage, something that he was ashamed of, had sinned against her. And they had reconciled, but he, he, he knew he needed to go and pray and talk to God and was still feeling really bad about himself. And so he went to pray and he, he got some time quietly, imagined this, this pub bar, right? Walks up to the front in his imagination and the door is shut. And he begins to weep. And so then he hears a voice. And the voice says, look at the door. And so he looks at the outline of the door and it's covered and dripping in blood. And he hears another voice and it says, you get to walk into this door because of the blood that covers the door, not because of your abilities. And so he walked in in his imagination, sat, prayed, and God ministered to him in this moment. That's the picture that the Bible paints of how we are to be confident before God. If it is based off of what you do, it's God. You don't have any right to step in his presence. But if it's based off of believing in the name of Jesus, you get to walk right in. And what do you do? John tells us what this is, this confidence ultimately goes to and is for. He says in verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. It's, the confidence is for prayer. You can tell what you believe about how God thinks about you based off of how you pray. How confident and boldly you ask for things. How much do you assume that he will give whatever you ask? And that's a crazy statement to say. Does that mean we just carte blanche anything I ask from God? God, I would really like a just easier job. I'd really like my friends. You don't get carte blanche, and we know that just off of our experience as human beings. So when you read that, you pass it over and you go, oh, that's nice, but it surely can't mean that. And we get later in the book that it gives like more caveats of like whatever we ask, we will receive in accordance with God's will. But That comes later because I think in this moment what John really wants to highlight, what do you assume about God the Father when you pray to him? That he wants to give you what you ask? Do you really think he's a dad? Jesus taught his disciples this parable where he would tell them, ask anything. And then he told them, which father of you, if his son came to him and asked him for a fish, would give him a scorpion. And so Jesus was pointing out to his disciples, you guys are dads. Not all of you are that great at being a dad. And yet, if your son asked you for a loaf of bread, do you give him razor blades? 
No, because you love your kid. And he says, you who are evil, right? This is what he said, like, know how to give your children how much more your father knows how to give you good gifts to those who ask. You see this in kids where my son, he's got like a handful of words, but he doesn't really know how to talk. And so he will ask me for things with whatever communication is at his disposal. And he'll, it's, it's funny, the first thing I notice about my son is as a child, as a son, he assumes that wherever I am, he's allowed to be. Dad's in the bathroom. It's so okay for me to be in there. Dad's in the shower. That's where I should be then. Just assumes that wherever I go, it's okay for him to be there. Do you assume the same about God? And I'll pick him up and he will ask for things, right? He'll see me eating some of my food and he'll just... It's fine, I didn't want this mac and cheese, but I guess it's yours now. He'll assume as a child to a father who loves him, right? Doesn't even have words for this, but he knows it that my father will hear my requests and give me what I ask of him. So much so to the point where if I have a knife, right, he assumes in his little brain, dad loves me, knife is shiny, I like shiny things. (laughs) To the point that he's devastated when I don't give it to him, right? And it makes me think about this, right? When we read these verses, we go, well, Jake, I have asked for things and I've not got them. And that can be really painful. But I've always wondered, what if in our ignorance, naivety of being humans and not being God and not having all of the universe at our disposal in our mind and all of human history and time and how everything's supposed to work together. What if we, when we step forward to pray, ask God for a scorpion, but we think it's bread? What would a loving father do? And so when we pray, it reveals a lot of the times we don't really have a confidence to stand before God. We forget that we are here because of the name and blood of Jesus. And when I step forward to pray, I am praying to a father who wants to give me anything I ask and in his wisdom, if I mess it up, he's not just gonna give me whatever I want, thank God. He has the whole universe at his disposal and his mind can see all the way into future. And so there might be things that we get no's or maybes or not right now's that in the moment, if you don't believe this correctly, you will assume that you got an answer you didn't like because God does not love you. And in that moment, we are failing to believe in the name of Jesus. Because if you do believe in the name of Jesus, you get an answer you weren't expecting in prayer, you know what you do? I guess I didn't see that one. I'll wait until I figure it out in the future. And for some of us, you'll get answers, right? We all have these things at the end of our life. We look back on prayers and we go, 
I am so glad God did not answer that one. And there might just be some that you die without ever getting a real answer to. Let me just give a personal one, right? My son, born super early, told you guys a traumatic story. And all these amazing prayers we saw come true with him, right? Power prayer, learned it. And the thing that I always have to wrestle with is me and my wife prayed that her pregnancy would go easy. And God said, no. How do you wrestle with that? Your only options in moments like that is to deduce, maybe he doesn't love me, or I believe in the name of the son of Jesus. It can't mean he does not love me. It just might mean I don't understand, and I'm okay with living with that. That is what you say back to your heart. You tell it that God is greater, and you tell it, I believe in the name of the Son of Jesus. And then that gives us a confidence to be able to step into prayer, and he says to love one another, which we have been talking through in weeks, right? But I wanted to focus on on this because if you don't believe that God loves you, love's not gonna flow out of it. And if you really believe in the name of Jesus and he loves us and has given us access by his blood into the sanctuary of God, that God's just sitting there every time you talk and he's like, go ahead, kiddo. If you don't believe that, or if you do believe that, you won't be able to not love people. It will flow over to others every time you hear it. And so what Jesus wants for his church and what I think First John was trying to do back then and even preaching through it to today to us, he wants us to know how to talk back to that heart that condemns and be able to speak and preach back to it. God is greater than you. And to be able to stand in confidence and prayer and in love, your feet are standing on the ground of I believe in the name of Jesus. And so as we end our time, I wanna give you guys an opportunity to put this in action right now because the last part of this verse, whoever keeps his commandments, abides in God, God in him, says in verse 24, and by this we know he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Short version of this. What does the spirit do? It points you to believe in Jesus. So here's what I want you to do right now. I'm gonna invite y'all to close your eyes, bow your heads. We're gonna do a moment where I'm gonna ask you to listen to the Holy Spirit. Even if you're here and you're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian, you could actually still try this. I would invite you to anyways and see what happens, see what God does. For all of us who would say, we do believe in the name of Jesus, I want you to take a moment and I want you to ask God those questions and listen to the Holy Spirit in you. And the first question I want you to ask, and I'm just gonna give you quiet right now to do it. Holy Spirit, show me, where is my heart condemning me? And when the Holy Spirit has 
brought that to your attention, I'm going to give you a moment just in silence. Preach back to your own heart and say, God is greater. Think about how Jesus is greater than whatever accusation your heart is throwing. Lastly, I want you to take a moment and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal if there's anything you are putting your confidence in that is not the name of Jesus. And when he does, he's going to talk to you. My invitation is that in that moment, you just confess it to him and repent. Tell your heart, I believe in the name of Jesus. going to take communion, and this is a physical, tangible embodiment of what we just preached on. And so I want, as you take the wine, take the bread, to preach to your own heart in that moment that you belong to the family of God because of the blood of Jesus, his body given to you. And knowing that confidently, go out into this week, love one another, and pray boldly like you have a father who hears you. God, I thank you for this time. And I thank you for your word. And I thank you for your son, the one we love, the one we put our hope in, the one who is the reason that we're here every Sunday. Continue to reveal him to us throughout the rest of this day and into this week and empower your people to love and obey you.